With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to not just another episode of Lords of Limited, but our second bonus episode, and even more importantly, episode 200. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, can you believe we made it? I really can't. 200 is just crazy to me. That's almost four years, Ben. Coming up on four years, and this all started by Ethan saying on stream, I'd like to do a podcast, but I don't really want to edit, and me saying in Twitch chat, I'd edit. I'll do a podcast with you, (laughs) like not knowing each other at all. Yeah, I remember I was in uh, San Diego for a wedding and I walked around the corner to a coffee shop from our Airbnb to get on a Skype call with you. And that was the first time I ever spoke to you. And that was us like prepping for doing our first episode of the podcast and talking about what we you know, wanted to do with the show, blah, blah, blah. And uh, history was made, Ben. Yeah, I do think we did a good job making a unique show. I think, you know, standing separate from limited resources and, you know, pushing in a slightly different direction. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, yeah, I say it all the time. I'm very proud of the show that we have. And I think that it's very clearly the show that I would want to listen to. And that's good because I do end up listening to it every week when I <laughs> meticulously <laughs> edit each and every episode now that the tables are turned. Yeah, that really was the driving point, right? We felt like we had sort of graduated from limited resources a little bit and we wanted a show that was for us. Yeah, for sick drafters who are putting in those, you know, 200 reps of a format or whatever. So today we're going to do something a little different. You know, we talk about how, you know, hyper-focused our show is. And I was sort of saying before this episode that I'm a little nervous because we usually have like pages and pages of show notes and I feel super prepared about what we're going to talk about and how things are outlined. And this week we're going to take a little bit of a personal route and interview each other. And so we've just got like a list of questions for each other, but I don't really know how the conversation is going to go. And this sort of was sparked because one, when I wanted to do something different and special for episode 200, but also like, you know, Ben is one of my best friends and I talk to him each and every week, but it's really focused about like our business and our show and magic. And I don't really often talk, you know, we have sprinkles of personal life in our conversations, but not that much. And so I'm hoping to dig a little deeper and, and get get some some real Ben Wernie here. Yes, for the amount of time that we spend together and as good of a friend as I would consider you, magic is just <laughs> 90% of our interaction. Yeah, for sure. Well, I don't know. I feel like that's sort of my, I don't know, my, like the the male friends that I have are, it's very activity based is our friendship. Like I went on vacation with my friend Charlie. We went to like Vegas for a few days uh, a couple years ago. And like, it wasn't until day three that we were like, so how are you? Like those first two <laughs> days, we were just like playing poker and playing magic and just like hanging out, but not really like getting into our lives. I don't know. And that's that's just sort of how my relationship is with a lot of my my guy friends. Yeah, I would say that's the same for me. Yeah. All right. Well, we're we're, we're kind of blowing it here. We got we got about some questions to go through. I, you have more questions than I do. So I'm going to throw it to you first. All right. Question number one, the thing that is on everyone's minds and trying to give the people what they want. Will Best of One Bob be making a comeback next preview season? <laughs> I, I don't know, I guess. I, there, there's a part of me that feels like I can never top it, so I don't really want to return to it. I just want to like leave it as whatever weird spike in the magic Twitterverse community it was and then just never return to it. But if I get another modal card as my, my preview card, I, it'll be hard to resist, I think. And so for those of you that maybe miss this, if you don't exist on magic Twitter the way Ethan and I do, he had a preview card and made like an SNL type sketch where he was best of one Bob, like, I don't know, selling your preview card, I guess. Yeah, it was just sort of like a I, I had this idea of like this, those old local car dealership commercials that always like look kind of crappy. And I don't know, I just say yeah, I was thinking about this character trying to sell you on these cards that like do multiple things. And that was one of what my preview card was. Yeah, it was 
perfect. It was high energy. It was well edited. It was the perfect length. I was just thinking when I watched that, how much effort you had to put into it. And then I was thinking about Saturday Night Live and how much effort has to go into something like that. And I was just kind of, my mind was kind of blown. And then I was thinking about how is he going to do a second version of this that is this good? Yeah, I probably shouldn't. That's like the the real answer is like, I should just leave that as the, the the thing that it was, I mean, it went like mildly viral, which is kind of crazy. Like the amount of retweets I got, it got like 30,000 views in 24 hours. But I think I probably should just leave it as is. And I, I, I should shout out uh, Amanda Henderson, who I, I hired as my editor for that video, because I had a lot of ideas in my mind about what I wanted it to look like. And I felt very confident that even if I like wasted a day on Adobe <laughs> trying to edit it, that I wouldn't <laughs> be able to make it look the way I wanted it to look. Yeah. Okay, then... There are a lot of questions I have about your like college to now days because I don't quite know the path that led you to becoming a music teacher. So I have a lot of questions that are sort of packaged in that. But I'll start with that question of what was your path from post college to not really where you are now, but maybe where, where I met you four years ago. Yeah. So college, I majored in music education at the University of Evansville. Um, graduated from there. And the plan was always to teach. But I definitely wanted to do graduate school before I started teaching because all the best teachers I know, you know, have some sort of an advanced degree in music, generally performance. Because I think to be a really good teacher, you have to be able to play an instrument really well, you have to play at a high level, you have to have a good ear, that sort of thing. And I had I have sort of a weird instrumental story in that I started band late in eighth grade, and was a percussionist all the way through high school was really good was an all state band, that sort of thing. And I knew I wanted to teach. So I wanted to play a wind instrument. And I didn't start playing clarinet until my senior year of high school. And I was pretty good, pretty fast. I made all state band on clarinet after I'd been playing for like five or six months, which is kind of insane, because you know, you're competing against the best kids in the state. So after five or six months of playing the clarinet, I was one of the top 15 kids in the state of Indiana, which is pretty cool. Um, so that got me thinking that I could maybe audition everywhere on both. So I did that and ended up deciding to do clarinet in college. And I'd only been playing for four years when I graduated college, five years, I guess, if you count my senior year of high school. So I didn't really know what my ceiling was. So I did a master's degree in clarinet performance, got a graduate teaching assistantship at Western Michigan University. That was awesome. I was playing really seriously, you know, taking auditions, that sort of thing. And there's a world where my life could have gone a different route. You know, I was taking professional auditions, and I'm sure you can relate to this, you know, studying acting and that sort of thing. I've been runner up four times in different professional auditions. And so like this is, you know, an audition of 70 or 80 clarinets that one person gets the job. You know, there's two clarinets in the orchestra and all these people, it's super competitive are auditioning. And so I was really close, you know, and you hear Luis talk about, you know, how did you end up on the pro tour? Well, this thing broke my way and, you know, I spiked this tournament and stayed on the train. Like I was really close. It's like I lost in the top eight of a PTQ or the finals of a PTQ, you know, four times to get on the, the professional clarinet playing train, as it were. So it certainly could have gone differently if I had, you know, spiked one of those auditions and, you know, gotten over the the runner up hump, but I did not. And so after that, I got my first teaching job in Edinburgh, which was a really rough low socioeconomic area, actually very similar to where I live now. Um, it's only probably about 30 minutes down the road. Taught there for a year, um, taught at a middle school in Evansville for a year, and then uh, got the job where you met me in Paoli, where I was an assistant band director. Sorry, I feel like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow it here and, and jumping to another question maybe, but I'm so curious. I didn't know you had this like percussionist background start. Did you ever just like want to be in like a rock band or something? <laughs> Or were you, no. you, you were just always on the teaching path, never really. And it sounds like, you know, as you said, maybe if stuff had broke your way in those big auditions that you would have been performing more professionally, but that seems to not have been really where your passion lied. Yeah, always wanted to teach. And even if I had, you know, gotten one of those jobs, a regional orchestra like that, even though it's professional, you're only making, I don't know, what, 10K for the year, maybe playing in the orchestra. Oh, wow. So I, I would have been teaching, I think still while I was playing professionally would have been the plan. But it just would have been cool to be, you know, playing in an orchestra regularly. And I have played professionally, you know, I've subbed a lot. Um, once you do well on one of those auditions, you generally get placed on sub lists where you get called if people can't make it. So you know, I've, I've played professionally and seen that world. And it's sort of like magic in that like, you have to dedicate so much time and effort and energy to practicing in a room by yourself for seven or eight hours a day. And then you're taking an audition against 
all these other people that are really insanely good and everybody wants the job and only one person gets it. And I, I probably could have ended up playing professionally if I'd stayed on the grind. It just wasn't worth the return on investment for me for what it would have cost to win one of those auditions. I loved it while I was in graduate school. And that was, you know, the time in my life I was dedicated to doing that and practicing that, but I didn't want it to ultimately be everything for me. Gotcha. Yeah. And as far as all that percussion stuff, uh, that was just strictly, I think if I had joined band in sixth grade, I would have played French horn or saxophone, but uh, I was able to get caught up on percussion really quickly because I had played piano for five or six years. So that was just sort of functional. And I mean, I did like percussion, but I was not great at drum set or something like that. I was much more of a keyboard marimba specialist, you know, played snare drum well, but I'm not anything fancy on the drum set or anything like that. Was the piano lessons something that like you wanted to do something that your parents were just like, got to get you doing some extracurricular activities type deal? I wanted to do it initially because my oldest brother started taking piano lessons. And so I was like five at the time and I wanted to be cool like him. And so we did. And then he stopped after a year and my parents were like, no, you're not allowed to stop. You're good at this. You're going to keep <laughs> doing it. And so like, they would set the little timer on the piano for 30 minutes and I would have to sit there and practice for 30 minutes. Yeah. Piano and I did not get along super well. Oh, wow. So it's not not something that you've returned to since then? Oh, Lord, no. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, piano was always something I wanted to have learned, but seems seems too tough. Uh, it's a decent amount of effort and energy, yeah. Guitar is way cooler, right? And uh, way easier. I mean, I, like I said, I'm self-taught. I mean, I can't like read sheet music, but I can read tabs. And I think it's it's fairly easy to teach yourself how to play guitar. I tried one summer and I gave up. I couldn't do it. What? Like you're you couldn't get those calluses or just like couldn't it just couldn't hack it with the two hands. I don't know what what happened. I got calluses, but my fingers hurt and something about I just couldn't. I wasn't as good as I wanted to be. It was just really frustrating like switching chords quickly. I don't know. Just nothing about it was easy for me. I wonder if that's just because like if you're just so, so good at an instrument to then try and like learn another one. I wonder if that frustration of just like, I'm not as good at this as I want to be. is going to happen no matter what. It's possible for sure. Yeah. All right. I'm throwing it back to you. Okay. Pack one, pick one. Wicked or Hamilton? This is an easy Hamilton for me. Not close. Boo. So first of all, you haven't seen Hamilton yet. I have. I got Disney+. Oh, you Plus. did? You watched it? I watched it on Disney+. Plus. I haven't seen it live. Okay. That's fine. I think I did not see the like original cast or scene in New York, but we saw the touring company in Pittsburgh and we had like pretty bad seats. And it was nice to see it like super up close with the original cast on Disney+. Plus Because I feel like we got a real appreciation of like the big picture and the choreography when we saw it live and then really got to like see those performances up close. So I've never seen Wicked. I've listened to the soundtrack before, but like, I don't know, just Hamilton is is it for me. And I'm not really a big musical theater guy, which is perhaps surprising or an unpopular opinion, but musical theater generally doesn't do it for me. And so just to dive a little further into that, you know, if musical theater is not your bag. Are you when you decided you wanted to be an actor, was it like theater acting? Was it TV acting? Was it all of the above? How did that sort of come about? Well, I it was mostly theater just because like that's what you get to do. So I started my my mom was doing community theater when I was like super young. And so it was something that I like just got roped into doing like if they needed a little kid part in a show that she was doing, then I would play that. So that happened like a handful of times. And then she sort of stopped doing it. And then I just kept going. And then and I went to a performing arts high school and like from, I don't know, grade seven onward, every summer was some sort of theater camp theater program. I did some like pre-college programs when I was in high school. And that, so just like, oh, like from as long as I can remember, that was like the trajectory was like, I'm an actor. This is the thing I do. This is like, I'm like good at this, whatever. So it was always theater because that was just like what I was able to act in, you know, it was hard. I don't even know how I would have gotten TV or, or movie auditions as a kid unless, you know, my parents were taking me to those like, you know, big casting calls for kids, you know, when they were looking for whatever the kid who played Darth Vader in the Star Wars reboot when they were like auditioning thousands of kids across the country, that sort of thing. But I was always like interested in doing TV or movies. And I haven't really done very much on camera stuff. I've done a couple commercials. I like just did my first TV gig. But those are like 
they're, they're kind of boring, to be honest. I mean, it's a lot of just sitting around and doing nothing. I imagine, you know, once you're, if you're the lead or whatever, but even then it just, it takes a long, there's a lot of like patience, I think, built into that. Whereas, you know, theater is a lot of collaboration, which is one of the great things about it is it feels like everybody's working together, whereas on set for something that's a, a TV or a film that there's a, it's just really the, you know, it's all the technical stuff and the director is really driving that ship and you're just sort of like a cog in that piece, you know? Interesting. All right. Well, keeping on the ideas about TV or movies, I have a question for you. Do you have a favorite movie or TV show or even perhaps more particular to your interests, music artist? I do. And, you know, it's funny you say, you know, particular my interest. I don't actually listen to that much music. Most of my downtime is listening to like talk radio or podcasts. I, I like music and I like listening to music, but I'm not passionate about it the way most people are as far as like a consumer of produced music like that. I would much prefer to go to a live concert or something. Mm, okay. So as far as favorite movies, Goodwill Hunting, I think has got to be number one for me. It's a good pick. TV shows, I think Breaking Bad probably takes the cake for me. Nice. And as far as music artists, currently it's Nickel Creek, I think. But it has been that for like, I don't know, three or four years as long as you've known me, probably. I just don't. I don't listen to new music at all. Yeah, I don't really either. Especially now that there was the Twitch crackdown on copyrighted music. I used to listen to Spotify all the time. But now I can't really do that. Like I used to be listening to Spotify, whatever, six, seven hours a day. And now I can't do that. Now I'm just listening to whatever the Twitch soundtrack stuff is. So I, I don't find myself discovering new music that much these days. I just don't like new music. I'm pretty sure I was supposed to have grown up in the 80s as far as my taste in music. I like James Taylor, that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a huge uh, 80s music fan. ELO, Hollow Notes, Huey Lewis. Those are the goodies. All right, throwing it back to you, staying on the acting track, auditioning and, you know, I like have some experience with this in the music world, but it's I'm sure it's different in acting and theater, but you have to put yourself out there over and over and over again with the overwhelming likelihood, even if you're really good, that you're going to be rejected. How do you approach that? How do you handle that from a mental perspective? It's tough initially, and I think eventually you get used to it. Like I eventually got to a place where I would just forget about it. You have to be good about once you leave the room, you assume you didn't get the job and you forget about it. This was something that was like really tough. You know, when I first got out of school and I would be talking to my parents and I'd tell them like, oh, I had an audition for this thing. And then the next time I'd talk to them, they'd be like, so did you hear anything? Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I had to like instill this in them. I was like, you can't ask. <laughs> like you can't ask if I heard anything because that will just remind me that I failed. So what you have to do is just trust that you are going to be the first people I will tell if I get a job. And otherwise, you can't ask about it. And they were they eventually got really good about that. And that was that was good for my mental health. Um, but so I had to like put that boundary in place. And then just, you know, yeah, you just get used to realizing, hey, it didn't happen. The thing that like you never get used to is like if you get a second audition for a thing, like because that doesn't happen that often. And then not getting those feels bad, right? As I'm sure you know, if you like this, these four runner up times, like the act of getting knowing you got close to something like Auditioning for one thing the first time, any number of things can be the reason why you didn't get it, right? As an actor, it could just be like, you're too tall, you're too short, you, you whatever, you don't match up against the person you'd be playing opposite with, and that person's already cast or whatever. There are so many factors that are outside of your control that uh, you can sort of write off. But once you get that second audition for a thing, then it's like, oh, they like me. Oh, I'm close. And then it's hard to, to write that off or hard to let that go at least as quickly as the others. So I have several questions here, but I want to talk to you about how it is in music first so that like you can sort of compare. Mm -hmm. So in music, you go and you have a number, like whatever. You show up and I'm clarinet number 23. And so like when it's your time, there's a screen, like you're on stage and there's a screen between you and the judging panel, which is usually the conductor of the orchestra and a couple members of the woodwind section in the case of me being a clarinet auditioning. And you play these excerpts from famous orchestral pieces. And, you know, your whole audition lasts like maybe two, three, four minutes the first time around, probably closer to five minutes, actually. Just seems like it goes super quick. But then, you know, when you're done, they just say thank you. And you're hoping you made it through all of the excerpts 
before they say thank you because if you only played one or two and they say thank you like you know you're done you're out <laughs> mm-hmm. so you're, you're hoping you get through the entire list of things you were supposed to play and then you go back and you wait and everybody else has to play and then they'll say you know after that we want to hear clarinet 7 clarinet 12 clarinet 30 clarinet 52 and if you're one of those five people, you stay around and you play again and they give you new pieces to play. But it generally happens, at least for the uh, the auditions I took were for smaller orchestras all in one day. For the bigger orchestras, you know, it's a multiple day process. So, you know, waiting to, you know, you're just saying like, please call Clarinet 27, please call Clarinet 27 in your head, you know, like when they're saying who's going to go on to the next thing. Do you see the director and all that stuff on the acting side of things? It depends. So sometimes like if you have an initial audition for a theater or a particular play, you may only be in front of like the assistant director or like the artistic director of the theater and not necessarily the person directing that play. And then maybe that initial audition, you're just doing like a monologue or something. Whereas if you have like an audition for a specific show, you know, they'll give you what are called sides, which is like excerpts of a scene from the that particular play. So usually, you know, sometimes the director will be there. But yeah, you see the people. I mean, you're just like in a room with them. And there's a reader. If you're doing a scene, there'll be a reader, someone you're reading with. And then if you're just doing a monologue, then it's just going to be you doing your thing in front of them. And then sometimes it's at the end, okay, thanks for coming in. And then you leave. And that usually is bad. Usually what you want is them to be like, all right, let's, you want them to work with you a little bit, like them giving you some sort of, okay, let's try it like this. That means they're interested in seeing if you take direction or like just want to see what what it's like to work with you. Usually just thank you, goodbye means you didn't get it. And then if you have like a callback, so a second audition, that'll usually not be the same day. Usually it's just like once you have your, you know, your appointed time to audition for something, then you leave and you're done for the day. And then if you have a callback, you'll get an email or a call later that day to come back the next day or whenever the callbacks are. And then, you know, the director will certainly be there. Maybe they'll, maybe it'll be like a block of time if you know if you're trying to read with someone else, like if they're if we're trying to find our leading guy and leading lady, then maybe they'll have like four guys and four women for an hour slot, and they'll just be like pairing you up to see how you read together, blah blah blah. Interesting. And so, as part of college, do they train you about handling all that rejection in the audition process and that sort of thing? No, not at all. And I don't, you know, I don't know what other programs are like, but it's. You know, so I went to Carnegie Mellon University, which is, you know, one of the best undergraduate BFA acting programs in the country. Certainly one of, if not the best for musical theater. And there's a lot of stuff in the school that really doesn't prep you for being in the real world. Like I was talking to my wife about this the other day, like so much of what you do in college is them, you you know, this like idea of being a transformational actor and stretching yourself to like play stuff outside of your comfort zone. And we do all these like you know, all these plays that you do in school where you're playing like 40 year olds and 50 year olds and, and then you get out of school and no one cares about any of that. They just want to know who you are because you're never getting cast as something that you're not really like, they're just going to find the person who is that so much of what you get cast in is like people like, Oh, you're so right for this part, you know? And that's because it's your personality. And so much of like getting out of school is like, well, I don't really know who I am or like what my strengths are. Cause so much of what I did in school was try and do the opposite of that or stretch myself or like be unrecognizable and apart. But no one wants that once you get out of school. That's cool. That's interesting. So we talked a lot about my path as an actor so far. I'm curious about what made you want to pursue a career in music. It sounds like music was always a big part of your life, but was there ever a time that you thought about doing something else? Or was there a time where you were like, this is definitely what I'm going to do that you can remember specifically? I mean, when I was younger, I wanted to do a lot of different things, right? As all kids do. I have a note that I wrote to myself in second grade with like the you know, the blocks where you make your letters and the dashed line across the middle where you have to like put the hump of your H up to the middle dotted line. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I have a note that I wrote to myself on that style of paper that says that I really wanted to be a teacher when I grew up. There was a point in time I went to a Catholic grade school where I wanted to be a priest or a member of the clergy. And that I think went out the window after a few years, but I didn't know what I really wanted to do until my sophomore year of high school. Um, Band really did a lot of great things for me because it gave me, you know, piano is just making music by yourself and band is, you know, you're part of this 
bigger thing, which was pretty awesome. And I knew I was good at it also, right? There were a lot of opportunities to like compete through music. And I am a very competitive person, as I know you are as well. Yeah. And so I knew I was good at music and band and I was doing well, you know, in the individual aspects of it, like solo and ensemble, where you go and you play your piece for a judge and they give you feedback. Or, you know, I was in all state band. I knew I was one of the best people at music. So that reinforced, you know, my enjoyment of it. You know, I talk to my students about this all the time, that there's a circle of good, fun work, right? Where when you're good at something, it's fun. And when it's fun, you want to work more at it. And then when you work more at it, you get better. And so you're even more good. And then it's more fun. And it just feeds on itself. And I was definitely caught up in that good work fun cycle for band. Mm. And then I had some teachers that were just really influential for me. All, all three of my band directors, specifically two of them, you know, just I looked up to them. They were role models for me. And I'm still very close friends with one of them. And he's very much a father figure to me. Um, so that those things combined, I really wanted to what those adults did for me while I was growing up and helped shape who I was, I wanted to do that for other students and just give back to people in that way. That's awesome. All right. Tossing it back to you. You know, you talked about a conversation with your wife. I know barely anything about Jen. I don't even know if it's spelled J-E-N or J-E-N-N. So tell me a little bit about Jen and how you all met. She goes by the double N. So J-E-N-N. Um, so I was in... I stayed in Pittsburgh the summer after I graduated to do a play and a friend of mine, a classmate of mine, he was also in town because he lived here. So he hadn't moved to New York yet. And he was going out for a friend's birthday party and he was like, oh, you should come. And if people know anything about me in terms of my like social proclivities, my general answer to that would be no, like going to a, <laughs> going to a, a, par a party with a bunch of people I don't know. I'm not super into that. I'm much more about like quality a number of people rather than the quantity in terms of my hangs. But I was feeling adventurous. And so I said, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll come out. And Jen was there. She's a, a mutual friend. And actually, Jen and my friend Nick, who was the guy who brought me along to this party, Jen and Nick went to high school together. And they actually dated through you know, senior year of high school through sophomore year of college. Um, but we're, we're now friends. Anyway, so we met at this party and we were, I don't know, getting along. And then afterwards, Nick was like, oh, you guys should date. And I was like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> that sounds good to me. Um, so, you know, I, I, there's this great, like, the night, night before we got married, Jen posted the initial Facebook message that I had sent to her asking her out on our first date. Um, oh, dear. Yeah. Which was just like, I mean, it was just very, like, formal, I guess is probably the best way to describe it. <laughs> and a lot of our, like, Facebook conversations were like me sending these like large chunks of text and her being like, okay. And they're like, oh, like if you want to go out, we could again, but if not, that's totally cool. No problem. Don't worry about that. And then it's <laughs> being like, yeah, that's fine. Whatever. So we the, basically, but the plan at the end of that summer was I was going to move to Chicago. So we dated throughout that summer with the idea of like, this is going to be over at the end of it. And then it wasn't. And we did like four months of long distance. And then she moved to Chicago. She was there for nine months. Then she went to grad school. We did two years of long distance while she was in grad school. And then we moved to New York together. And then we got married in 2015. So it's been married. Oh, gosh, almost six years now. Which is kind of crazy. Cow. Look at you. Yeah. Yeah. So and I you said you don't don't know much about her. She like she and I have incredibly different interests. Like she's not a gamer at all. She would never play magic. If she had told her high school self that her husband would be a full time magic the gathering player, <laughs> I think that would have caused her great anxiety and she would not have believed that. But we love to cook together and she has just like the best dry sense of humor. That was like the first thing. I noticed about her that one first night we met and uh, yeah, she's great. And I'm, I cannot imagine, especially in this past year, like I can't imagine what my life would be like without her, but especially during COVID, like, oh my God, I don't know what, what I would, would do without her. My impression of Jen when she's ever in the room, like when we're getting ready to record the podcast or, you know, like a brief appearance on stream when I'm watching your stream is that she tolerates Magic the Gathering. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she is, I, I, I think I'm not putting words in her mouth. She's incredibly proud of me um, and the show that we've built and my work ethic and all that stuff. But like anytime I try and get in, I'm, if I have a story to tell her that like 
requires me to get into the weeds about magic at all, I have to like prep her. I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go deep a little bit here. <laughs> and she's like, okay, okay. And she's always game for that. But I try and be sensitive to the fact that, yeah, I think she, she tolerates it. I think she finds it. She, I think she just doesn't get it in a sense. Like she doesn't, I always sort of joke that she doesn't have any hobbies, like she reads or whatever, but like, she doesn't have anything like magic is for me. And so I don't think she just grasps like being so insanely obsessed with something <laughs> the way <laughs> that I am. And she sort of spins it. She's like, well, it's very clear that you don't get sick of things, which is very good news for me, is what she says. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right, Ben, I want to talk to you because I think this is something that I have a feeling about as someone, you know, I'm, I've never been a, a teacher in, in the sense of like having a classroom, but I have done, you know, one-on-one tutoring for test prep stuff. I have a lot of years of experience with that. Do you think that teaching is a skill or a talent? Like, can it be taught or is it something that you just inherently can or cannot do? That's a really good question. That's a deep question. And I think the answer is a bit of both, which is a no, cop out. That's a huge I think. cop out. Yeah. I know it's a huge cop out. At its core, I would say it's a talent and or is wrapped up in your personality a lot. But I think like anything else, you know, with focused effort and energy, you can improve it as a skill. But I think baseline, you're either kind of cut out to be a teacher or you're kind of not. What are what did your you said you had an opinion? What's your what's your feeling on that? I, I, yeah, I think at its core, it's a talent, not a skill. I think it just requires too many different things. Like you have to be good at explaining things. You have to have a level of patience. You have to have a level of being outgoing. You have to be a problem solver in that not everything can be explained the same way to every person. You know, you have to sort of find the way that this concept can resonate with student A versus student B. I think all of that to an extent can be taught, but I think you have to have a a core understanding or like this sort of inherent ability to do that. Yeah, I think the first and foremost thing is you have to love kids. You have to love them messing up and helping them get over their mistakes. And you have to love, you know, them making bad choices and, you know, helping show them the right path. I think there's, yeah, there's just a lot of fundamental tenets that you have to have wrapped up in your personality. And one of the things that I struggle with, or I think, you know, if I had to list my weakness as a teacher, mm-hmm. it would be being entertaining, which is odd because I think I'm pretty entertaining on the podcast and when I stream and things like that. But it's hard for me to be funny sometimes when I'm in front of a whole band. Like I get very much like I could do, you know, obviously with magic, I can do the same thing over and over and over and over and not get bored. And I love music so much that I could you know, practice the same thing over and over and over and over trying to get it right. And kids aren't necessarily that way. So just always trying to be performing and on when you're teaching, I think is something that I struggle with and is really draining for me. Like I wish when I signed up to be a teacher that someone had told me because I'm pretty introverted, just like how exhausted at the end of a school day I would be just because of having interactions with the sheer number of people like I see 400 kids on a daily basis in band like in the course of seven hours and some of them are having good days some of them are having terrible days you know some of them are having average days some of them really want to be there some of them would rather be anywhere else you know <laughs> yeah and I think in band I'm lucky in that most people most of the time want to be there but it's still you're managing a lot of emotions from a lot of different people and it's just really draining as an introvert do you feel a big need to be liked by your students. That was something that was super important to me when I was doing the test prep tutoring. Like you really needed to have that kid like you, I think, to be excited to work with you or whatever. I imagine that's a lot tougher when you're working with 400 students. I teach best from a perspective when there is, yes, that sense of like and trust and respect. And I mean, everybody does. Not liking in the sense that they need to think that you're cool, but liking in the sense that, you know, they want to spend time around you and know that you're going to give them good information and they trust you and that sort of thing. Like there needs to be a working relationship there. And I am a much less effective teacher when that's not in place. So I do try very hard to develop, you know, relationships with students and get to know them and what makes them tick and that sort of thing. Um, So yeah, I think that is fundamental to teaching, especially for me, the way I teach as a person, I'm very student focused first. And like band is the vehicle, I guess, sort of almost. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna throw it back over to you. 
So we've talked a lot and you oftentimes is a phrase that you, I hear you say, you know, when you and I have had conversations or occasionally on stream that you're very fulfilled by your current life. And then I know you have what is a lot of people's dream job, which is being a full-time content creator. So just for everybody out there that's, you know, maybe thinking, you know, I wonder what his life is like. Can you walk me through what an average day in the life of Ethan Sachs is? <laughs> sure. So I wake up around, I don't know, eight o'clock, 830, have a cup of coffee with Jen, and then I will get on my computer and I'll try and do some a little housekeeping stuff before firing up the stream. So, you know, I usually check email, Twitter and Discord, do any like deck techs that have come in over the night or whatever, answer any questions that I've, I've gotten, that sort of thing. And then fire up the stream. Um, and I usually do that for about six-ish hours, you know, something like 9.30 to 3.30 type deal. And then that like next couple hours is usually reserved for other content related things. So whether I have a few coaching sessions scheduled, I try and schedule them either, you know, at the the ends of the day in terms of either try and schedule them first thing in the morning or late afternoon, early evening, um, so that I can have my nights free, but also that it doesn't cut into my streaming time. You know, I have have this like rule in my head about streaming that if I can't do it for at least three hours, it's really not worth it to fire up the stream because there, as you know, I think there's this like momentum thing that happens when you stream in terms of viewership snowballing that like if you're doing that for a short amount of time or, you know, I was just talking to my in-laws about this the other day. They were like, oh, so do you guys have like lunch together during the week? And I was like, no, I, I Jen brings me lunch, which is very nice, <laughs> but I don't stop streaming. And that was sort of like hard for them to wrap their heads around. And I was like, well, if I just like stop streaming at lunch every day, it would just be so hard to get that viewership back when I would like fire up again at 1 p.m. or whatever. Okay, I have an interjection question here before you finish the rest of your day. Yeah. Is it hard being a full-time content creator explaining to people what you do? Have you figured that out? No, I, I haven't figured it out and I hate it. And, and it's so weird because when you're an actor, everyone has an opinion about what you do. Everyone's has a cousin who's an actor or, <laughs> oh, I watch Netflix. Have you ever thought about being on Netflix? Like everyone has an opinion and thinks they know something and have something to offer to you. And I never wanted to talk about being an actor when that was like <laughs> the thing I considered myself. And now that I do something that I am like super passionate about and very proud of and would be happy to talk about for hours to anyone who would ask, people, there's just too much of a barrier to like, I have to, okay, I have to explain to you that there's a card game that is now digital. I have to explain to you that what Twitch is, if you don't know what Twitch is. I have to explain to you what streaming is now. There's just too many things to talk about, to explain that I just like try and never talk about it. That's what I assumed would happen, but that's that's a shame, right? It's a shame. Yeah, it's it's a bummer. Cause I like I said, I am very I am very proud of, of it and I would love to talk about it. But I also I, I have a thing, I don't know if you ever do this, but I have a thing where I sort of see how, you know, if like you think you have a good anecdote or a good story to tell, then I'll play it out in my head and I'll censor myself if I'm like, no, that's actually going to be super boring or there's too much to explain for me to get to this punchline. So I just won't tell this story. So I self edit a lot in, in that respect and talking about what I do. And that feels like there's just too much. And I also think like I talk about it, but then people, you know, it's gauche to talk about money, but that feels like the only way to sort of explain to people that it is an actual job. Cause I think people are like, Oh, that's cute. You do this thing all day. I guess you, that's your job, but like, there's no way to sort of explain it to them in any other metric. I don't know. It's, it's tough. Yes, I have run into that same thing when I've been trying to tell people that the podcast is successful. Like, how do you do that without bringing up, you know, that the fact I, I generally settle for like, you know, we're successful enough that you are able like the person that I do it with is able to do it full time, you know, and make make a living. Yeah, I think that's the way to do it. Yeah, it's just tough. How do you how do you do it? Like, you, you know, there's no there are no metrics out there of podcast downloads. Like I know what our downloads are. But there's no way to know what other podcasts are and how do you compare that and how does, would anyone know like our numbers versus another shows like what what does that mean in terms of success? Yeah, it's just hard. All right. So finish your day. So you've just gotten done. You've had some coaching sessions. You're at dinner time. Yeah. Well, so yeah. So either either those those hours are coaching or, you know, writing show notes for the podcast or writing an article or making a video for CFB or doing some editing or whatever. So so couple hours there for extracurricular non-streaming stuff and then 
you know, if I'm, I'm, I have my little home gym now that I built for COVID a couple months ago. So a few times a week, I'm, I'm doing, trying to do three workouts a week. So maybe if it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'll have a workout and then cook dinner, have dinner with Jen. And then we're usually on the couch from like, I don't know, 7.30 to 10.30 watching some, either we're watching some prestige television, you know, we're in the middle of the Sopranos right now, or we were on a binge of uh, some garbage TV like America's Next Top Model. So we we're, we have a big, <laughs> big range of what we watch at the end of the day. And then, you know, usually in bed at 11 and then do, do it all again the next day. Saturdays are my quote unquote day off. And then Sundays we record and I edit the podcast. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a week in the life of, of Ethan, the content creator. Speaking of content, what is one piece of advice you would give to aspiring content creators? So either you can frame this either as someone today who comes to you and says, what, what's the one thing I should know? Or what piece of advice would you give yourself four years ago? Uh, I feel pretty good about how I handled it and how we handled it. I don't think I have advice to give past me. I think we just got really lucky, to be honest. But the yes. piece of advice I would give is directly tied into, I think, what happened to us is that if you're going to start making content, it should not be with the expectation of making money at all, like zero. And I don't think that was there for me. And I don't think that was there for you either in the beginning. Like to me, mentally, the podcast was a way to sort of legitimize the stream or like drive viewers to my stream. And really, it's been the other way around. Like the stream has sort of, I think, fed the growth of the podcast. And the podcast feels like the more uh, official of the two things that I do or that we do to me. And so the piece of advice I would give is just, you know, you have to love doing it. And you just have to do it for the sake of you want to do this thing and put it out there. And then if other people like it and engage with it, Great, but you shouldn't be doing it with the idea of chasing likes or chasing views or chasing downloads or chasing money. Like you just have to have an idea and you have to have a focused idea. Like you need to know what you want to make and you need to make it however often you say you're going to make it. Like, you know, when we were Googling starting a podcast, the only things you can find are you have to be consistent and it has to be, you know, good audio quality. And I am very proud that we have never missed a week. Since we started the podcast, it's been coming out every Monday or Tuesday and every Monday since you started editing like clockwork. So I think those things is what I would tell content creators that are aspiring. Yeah, I think having an audience in mind and being consistent in whatever way possible, those are the, the two biggest things. And they're really the two only things. Like you said, if you Google like how to be successful making a podcast or whatever, there, there's not much out there, but those seem to be the two things that are pretty clear. All right. So throwing back to you and content creation full time, if you were to evaluate being a content creator, because I know it's got, you know, it's huge perks, but it also has its downsides that people don't necessarily always get to see. And I do sort of because I know you and I'm someone that understands what you do and you can vent to me. So what's the ceiling of content creation and what's the floor? And what would the final letter grade that you give it be? Okay, so I think I, I would give content creation a solid B. It's not a it's not a bomb, but it's definitely like worth building around, worth moving in for whatever. So it's got a pretty, I think it's got a pretty high floor, but not a very high ceiling, at least in terms of magic content for me. And so what, what I mean by that is like, you know, doing it is great. Where I am at in terms of being able to do it full time is great, but that comes from years of doing it while having another job, years of doing it for no money and like still trying to put in the 25 hours to my stream a week while doing something else that makes me actual money, whatever, stuff like that. So now that I'm here, it feels like the, the floor is pretty high, but the ceiling, it's kind of tough because it doesn't scale. And content creation is a weird thing where, you know, you can always be working. Like there's always more I could be doing to even off stream, improve the quality of my stream or, you know, more videos I could be putting out on our own YouTube channel, right? There's always more you can do that has some but it's not quite tangible or, or knowable, some amount of value to your overall brand or your overall uh, income. But it's hard to know what that is. And it's also hard to like turn that off. Like I really need to be better about you know, not checking Twitter and Discord at night. Like I need to sort of give myself hours of, I'm allowed to clock into Twitter from nine to five or whatever, but I have to then not check it because I then find myself being like, oh no, someone like emailed me and said that they lost access to the Patreon Discord. So I, okay, let's pause the show right now. I'm going to go upstairs and, and give them access and then I'll come back down. And I just feel like I'm, I need to be on call all the time or whatever. And so to that extent, 
it's not there. There are some drawbacks there as well, but then it also feels like I don't know how much higher I can go in the in the world of magic. You know, I definitely feel like there's always growth for what we do, but at a certain point, I wonder like you know there is a cap. It's not like I don't know a corporate job or something where you maybe could achieve like climbing up the ladder. I'm talking. I don't. I'm talking out of my ass here. I don't know anything about jobs. I've never had a real like, desk <laughs> job or anything. But you know, I imagine that could be a thing, um, and that's not really the case. But you know, it's it's all mostly great. You know, I I feel artistically fulfilled. I feel like I have creative outlets. I have complete creative control over what I do and what we do. You know, I feel like I'm, you know, it's a very our working relationship is great for the podcast and all the stuff that I do on my own. I just feel like I I get to write the articles that I want to write. I get to make the videos that I want to make. I get to stream when I want to stream, what I want to stream. You know, all of that is pretty awesome. So yeah, solid B. All right. I you you mentioned this a little bit earlier that you know you mostly listen to talk radio or podcasts do you listen to any non-magic podcasts and if so what are your favorites oh yeah i listen to a lot of non-magic podcasts usually it's sports talk radio mm. uh, i really like the dan levitard show uh, if anybody out there listens to that it was was on espn but he was pretty edgy and i think espn was controlling a lot of his content that he wanted to push into so eventually you know they parted ways recently uh the spring and now he's doing his own podcast separate from espn that is an actual podcast as opposed to a radio show but a lot of the podcasts i listen to are radio shows after the radio shows have actually aired because they're airing while i'm at school um but he actually like pays his whole crew now to like produce this podcast um they've got a group of people that do it uh listen to the, the bill simmons podcast genre group of people um trying to think what else i listen to on a regular basis obviously all of the magic podcasts i listen to uh, npr a lot back when car talk was a thing <laughs> um i listen to car talk religiously and wait wait don't tell me i listen to fairly regularly so a lot of that type of stuff nice all right i'm gonna put you on the spot here okay we've talked a lot about streaming <laughs> twitch chat friend or foe mostly friend is the answer. Did you hear that pause? It's mostly friend. It's just that the foes are so much louder, sometimes actually and in my head than the friends are. You know, I think you can probably relate to that. It's always the negative voices that ring in your head. You can receive 100 compliments and one bad post or something. And that's the thing you remember. You don't remember. It's so much easier to remember the bad beats than the good beats. You know, that's just that's human nature. Um, and I think that happens with Twitch chat when people are being negative towards you or just like constantly disagreeing or nitpicking or whatever. And I, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago on stream about how I think there's just a general lack of empathy towards streamers from Twitch chat in terms of not, you know, I think there's a, a small, very loud minority of people who just are negative. And then there's a, a good number of people who just are good natured, but perhaps don't quite understand like how their comment comes across. Or, you know, I was streaming this new cube yesterday and everyone who comes in chat is like, what is this? And I was just like, I can't answer this question. You have to understand, like, if you have this question, you have to imagine that, like, other people do too. And so maybe, like, just go Google it in another tab or something and just think about how many times I'm receiving this question. And then, you know, I, I'm watching LSV stream it and he's got, you know, 10 times the viewers I do. And so he's getting that question 10 times as much. It's just so incessant. And that's not like, there's nothing bad happening there other than a lack of like, let me put myself in this person's position. But most of all, I've made a lot of, you know, I have Twitch chat to thank for you and for Stunlock and for meeting Jamie and, and having a great community of subs and people in my discord. And like, that's all so, so positive. And that should, in my mind, outweigh all those like, you know, all those people who are just sometimes negative or overly critical. And I shouldn't really care about them. But I, I unfortunately do. Yeah, it's I experienced the same thing with Twitch chat and with parents and students. I mean, you know, if you have a problem with a student, that's one student out of 400 or, you know, with the high school band, if I have a parent that, you know, is complaining about something, that's one parent out of 320, you know, and I try to remind myself of that, that the other, you know, whatever, 300 are probably happy and satisfied with the job that I'm doing. But not a lot of people take the time to reach out and say, hey, you're doing a good job. Like they just are 
silent or along for the ride for the most part. Right. And the people that are having problems are the ones that you deal with. So you're, you're faced, the negativity is a lot more present than the people that are happy or satisfied. Right. That's, that's also human nature. I feel like you're so much more likely to leave a review of something if you're not satisfied than if you are satisfied. I went to the grocery store a few weeks ago and the cashier I had was like so fast. And then they, they're on this like stream of, you know, if you fill out this questionnaire thing online, you get whatever bonus things, but also it's really helpful for me. And I was like, you know what? I was feeling really good. I was like, you were awesome at your job. I'm going to take the time to do this. So I got in my car and put the little code on my phone, answered the first questionnaire thing. And then it was like, went to the next page and it was like, you're 3% done with this quiz. I was like, (laughs) how long is this going to take for me to just tell you that I thought this cashier did a good job. And that's why people don't want to give good feedback, you know, just too much, too many hoops to jump through. Barrier to entry is high. (laughs) All right, Ben, real talk here. Why can't you just admit that you love best of one? Oh, wow. You, so here's what, here's the journey that I'm on with you is that (laughs) I get wanting to grind to mythic. I get that. Like, it feels like, you know, it's a notch in your belt. You got to do it every time you can as a streamer, whatever. I know it feels like some sort of thing, even though if you've done it before, I'm sure you could do it again. So you don't, you don't really have anything you have to prove, but I get that as a thing. I do it myself, even though it pains me, you were stuck in diamond for so long during Kaldheim. I kept telling you like, take a break, go to best of three. Wouldn't do it. I think it really tainted your experience of the format. But even once you got to mythic, like, I think you did like five best of three drafts. Yeah. I'm, I'm maybe up to double digits now. I'm maybe up to 10. But so just admit that you like best of one. You just like you can't both play best of one and complain about it. I'm sorry. You can't have it both ways. So here's the thing. Here's here's my defense. I still think I prefer best of three, but there are a lot of things about best of three on arena that don't jive with me. So I started playing best of three initially in call time, did a couple drafts and the competition was pretty soft. And I thought, well, if I'm doing research for the podcast, I want to play against the best competition. So I should probably be best of one. So went over to best of one and then got stuck in diamond, etc. And a lot of that was because I was drafting the format incorrectly, I think, and had some bad luck, some bad runs. But I, I was not approaching Kaldheim optimally when I was struggling in diamond. And so then I got to mythic. And that was the point where I really felt like, okay, I understand what's going on here. And I wanted to kind of reap the rewards of you know, spending all that time grinding it out in Diamond and actually try to win in Mythic. And I do think I've largely been successful since I hit Mythic, but there's several things going on. I just feel kind of aimless when I'm in best of three because there's no leaderboard, there's no ranking system. Like it just feels, nothing drives me there, which is pathetic that I need (laughs) the whatever the top 1200 thing in best of one to motivate me. But I just feel like I'm accomplishing something when I can see my rating move up or down, as it were, in best of one, and I I feel goalless in best of three. You know, there is a leaderboard on 17lands.com. It's not comprehensive for all of Arena, but it does exist. Yeah, I agree. There's something about best of one. I Okay. Just admit it. Just just profess your love to best of one, and we can move on. I don't hate best of one. That's, that's what I'll give you. I don't hate best of one. You guys are having an affair. That's what's happening. And you just don't want to tell me. Okay, throwing it back over to you. We've talked a lot about content creation. And I know I haven't heard much about this from you recently. So I'm kind of curious where you're at on it. Would you like to do magic coverage? And if so, are you taking any steps towards that? Are you just hoping it's going to happen organically at some point? Where are you at with the the coverage? Um, I think COVID has given a pretty big hit to that. Um, I, I definitely would still love to do magic coverage. I think that's sort of like a... I don't know. That feels like an, an end goal to do, you know, to cover a draft at whatever the, the Pro Tour is and it would now be known as when they whenever they bring back limited to the Pro Tour, if that happens. To cover a draft at that level would be insane. That would feel like the, a, a huge achievement. Am I doing anything to achieve that goal? No, I'm not doing anything actively to do that. Other than I feel like putting myself out there a lot, you know, partnering with CFB, maybe that can lead to something down the road. But it does feel like, you know, there's simultaneously a lack of, there's a lack of events to cover. I think it's a pretty big ask for me to be like, I think I would do a great job being play by play for a constructed tournament as I have done in the past many, many times. But I think, you know, places that do tournament coverage have their roster of folks. And I also think being 
a straight white guy, they've got those now too. And so if they're going to add people to their roster, they should be looking for diversity includes. And I totally support that. And so I I just think it's a tough time right now for me to try to break into that. And I think there's a bit of a waiting game slash maybe trying to see if other opportunities other than that big bad stage open up, you know? Sure. Yeah. And I think just continuing to do what you do with the podcast and streaming and all that stuff is going to grow you and grow your brand. Yeah, for sure. All right, Ben. So I have a pretty clear, I don't know, brand preference for outside the box strategies. You know, I did my like weird week during M21 where all I drafted was shrines. I think I have that sort of as part of my thing or my niche in the community. I feel like that's clear for me. How would you describe your brand as a player, like what you like to do or what you think you're really good at, that sort of thing? I don't know that I have a specific brand. The thing I want to do in Magic most is win. And whatever is going to win, whether that's casting some tutus and putting a short sword on them or, you know, casting divination and wrath of God. I am game to do. In cube, I do definitely have a preference of wanting my opponent to not have any permanence on the battlefield or or as few permanents on the battlefield as possible, because I think that's the way for me to not get horrifically unlucky. So that's that's generally my cube strategy. But in general magic, to me, it's about the puzzle. And I want to solve whatever the optimal strategy is in the puzzle of the draft format. And so I don't have like, I want to come in and do multicolored stuff, or I want to come in and be the aggressive player. I want to come in and try to solve the puzzle as quickly as possible. And then once I find the right answer, I want to win as much as possible with the right answer to the puzzle. Yeah. Well, speaking of cube, which you also hate now, right? When did you start hating fun and cube? (laughs) I, yeah. <laughs> You're putting me on the spot here. I know. I think Cube is good. I I love Cube. I am less hot on Cube at the moment because it feels a little old to me. So like specifically the MTGO cubes, I mean, there was a point and I think you and I went through the same progression here of watching the channel Fireball Cube videos and learning how to vintage cube. And then I after I was good at vintage cube, went through about a year of forcing storm and like coming to terms with the fact that I could do it, but was not very good at it. And then after that, when we started the podcast, cubing was really fun, you know, streaming it initially. But at this point, I have played so much of the MTGO cubes that it is a really stale format for me. And there's nothing that I really want to do because the artifact decks that I like to play, like the big mana balance decks are so contested now because the average cube player is just so much more well-informed and drafting it so much better. You just can't get the busted decks as consistently. So that's a little bit less fun for me. And then the random cubes that pop up, you know, like whatever, the Nega cube that's out right now on MTGO, it's going to be out for such a short time that I don't feel like, you know, I said I'm driven by that puzzle solving. I'm not going to be able to solve the puzzle or there's not the puzzle to solve. So the absence of that makes those, you know, spotlight cubes a lot less interesting or appealing to me. But I did, I was really rejuvenated with the arena cubes. I I enjoyed both the Tinkerer's Cube and the Arena's Cube because I felt like they were going to be around and they were new and there was something to learn about those cubes. So I don't, I don't think you can say that I hate cube. I I do very much love cube. I have a different relationship with it than you do. Like I am not just up for cubing a new cube one time. Like that does not sound that enjoyable an experience to me or even five times. Yeah, that, yeah, that's, I agree. I do, I do enjoy that. But I did forget when I put this question on here that you did actually play quite a bit of the Arena Cube and Tinkers Cube the last time around. Yeah, and I it's out now again. I, it's going to be close whether I do those cubes or call time. Yeah, I think I'm on. I think I'm on all cube. I think I'm. I mean, we're <laughs> we're now recording this a little bit early. Oops, sorry, listeners. We're recording this a couple weeks before we're going to actually release it. And uh, I think I'm. I think I have had my last call time draft of the season. Wow. Yeah. All right. Throwing it back to you. If you were given the opportunity to time travel to change your username when you first created it, knowing that you were going to end up as Lord Tupperware and have a podcast and do that sort of thing, would you go back and make a different username? Would it be Ethan Sachs? Would it be something entirely different? What are your thoughts? I would 100% choose a different name, I think. But I have no idea what it is. I've never thought about it because 
I just know that's not really in the cards. And so I don't, I don't spend any energy thinking about it. If I, if I can't change it or it's just like, there's no, no going back now, you know, but I would definitely change it. It's just, it's so weird. I get questions about it a lot and I don't have a good people are like, where did you come up with the name? I'm like, I don't know. It just like, it just came to me when I was making my account on magic online and I just made the name, you know? So I, I, I think it's super weird, but I, I don't know what I would change it to. At least you're not XX underscore destroyer. <laughs> 12349XX underscore. Yes, that I don't know how people come up with those, but yes, I'm I'm very, definitely very grateful for that. I would have made a name change for that for sure. Well, didn't did you have a you had a different account, right? You changed you made a new MTGO account as Mr. Metronome, didn't you? Yeah, I did make a new account as Mr. Metronome. My my initial one was BWMM for my initials Ben Warney, Master of Music. Mm. Not the boom. That's my boom. username. Nice, nice. I do have a pretty embarrassing email from fourth grade that I made that's L-I-L underscore W-E-R-N-07, Lil Wern 07. Lil That's my first fourth grade email address. And isn't one of your brothers like Big Wern MD? Yeah, that's this is the same older brother that I, you know, started playing piano when they started playing piano. I wanted to be cool like my older brothers. Yeah, I definitely can relate. All right, Ben, I think this will be my last question for you. You have your wholesome brand. That's your public persona, but I know the real Ben, okay? Uh, what's a time that you've lost your cool or maybe done something negative that you're not proud of that you would be willing to share with our dear listeners? All right, so we're going to have to go way back for this. So second grade. Oh, this doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> this is my cop-out when you oh, answer this question. Such a cop-out. So... We had a little store in our classroom, right? Where if you were good, you earned money and you could buy things from the store. Like on Fridays, you got to go visit the store and buy like whatever. I don't know, a yo-yo or there was all kinds of stuff in the store. And like the cooler, the higher demand items were more money. So, you know, if you've got an A on your thing, you got some money. Or if you behaved well, like coming in from recess, you got some money. Our teachers were bribing us to behave. And so... I realized that I had the same fake money, like identical. It wasn't like Monopoly money or something, but I had the same fake money at my house. And so I brought in (laughs) millions of dollars (laughs) on Friday and I tried to buy the entire store. And then my teacher was like, now, Ben, you didn't really get all this money here. And I doubled down and I lied about it. And I was like, yeah, I did. You know, I get really good grades, blah, blah, blah. And then I got caught lying and my parents got called and I was in huge trouble at home. That's funny. I thought, so where I thought that story was going was that like, you were just like, and I got like, I snuck a Snickers bar every Friday for all of second grade. But no, you decided to just like try and buy the whole store thinking that your teacher wouldn't notice that they didn't give you a million school bucks or whatever. Yeah, it was foolproof. <laughs> yeah, how could that go wrong? Well, that's a pretty good story, but that definitely definitely feels like a cop out. I like to say that I ha- I've had I've had this relationship with a number of friends, and I don't know what that says about me, but I feel like I'm the only person who gets to see Ben being mean, and Ben's the only person who gets to see me being nice. Sort of like our <laughs> behind, behind the scenes relationship. Versus our on-screen persona. I mean, I have to keep that carefully cultivated PG image. Yeah, hashtag wholesome. All right, I've got one more for you here before we go. Uh Uh-huh. You are a well-known Grinch. (laughs) What is wrong with Christmas? Oh, but will you agree with me on this, though? Oh, absolutely. I don't have a problem with Christmas. Like, Christmas is fine. I like being with family. I like being cozy by the fire. I like having a big, lavish meal, whatever. All that stuff is, is good in my book. It's obligatory gift giving that I am not on board with. And it's for a number of reasons. It's mostly because that is not my like, are you aware of the five love languages, Ben? Yes, but I wouldn't be able to tell you what they are. So there's like acts of service and I think physical touch and gift giving is one of them. So gift giving is 100% not my love language. Um, It is, I think, I mean, I I think my wife speaks many love languages, but I definitely think it's one of hers. She is very good at giving gifts. She's very thoughtful about it. It's just not like how I work. Like I would much rather, acts of service is my deal. Like I'm like, I'll clean the kitchen. I'll make dinner or whatever. Like I like to do these little tasks. That's how I express my appreciation for people. And so gift giving, I'm like, I'm happy if you, if that's what you want to do, if you want to give gifts, that's great. But then I have this guilt of like, I have to reciprocate this thing. 
but I don't know what to get you. And then you just end up buying people stuff that they don't need or don't want. Or then they're like giving you a wish list and it's like, well, we're all adults. And like, you can just buy the things for yourself. You can just buy this yourself. Like, you know, you want it. So just buy it. That's my gift to you is permission to go buy this yourself. I I don't know. That doesn't, you know, when you, when you, there is a, a high or a feeling of like, I thought you wanted this. You didn't ask for it. And you're like, oh yes, I really needed this. And that's a great gift to get. That just doesn't happen that often. And I feel like the obligation of it through whatever, through birthdays, through Christmas. I'm, it's not It's not just Christmas. It's just the gift giving thing in general at any holiday that I am. It's hard for me to get on, on board with. And that's that's my grinchiness. Well, and it's way better when it's genuine and spontaneous, like somebody randomly getting you a gift rather than because they had to because it's Christmas or your birthday or whatever. I am team Grinch on as far as gift giving is concerned. Like what a surprise it was when I got the the full balance art from you in the mail. That was such a great gift. Like I didn't, you know, that wasn't something that I wanted or like that was on my list, but like I'm very happy I have it. It's proudly sitting on the wall behind me. That's awesome. Those sorts of things have meaning to them. Whereas like just being like, I got you this thing because it's Christmas. That feels a little less good to me. Well, right. And there's also the extra gift of, you know, we both feel the same way about gift giving. So there's no expectation of reciprocity. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going to get all the hate mail from people that love Christmas now. I know. Like I said, I don't think we have a problem. Well, maybe you do. Maybe you just full on hate Christmas. I I, I actually am a Grinch. Yeah. I am full on. (laughs) Don't like Christmas. Nice. It's a great place to end our 200th episode. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody, for indulging us and coming along for the ride. You know, uh, once every 200 episodes, cool to dive a little deeper into our personal lives outside of magic. Do you think we're going to get 200 more episodes in the can? Ooh, predictions. I hope so. I don't know. That's a lot of episodes. It's a lot of episodes. I mean, it's it's hard to think about that. I mean, I, I don't know what my expectations were when we started the show, but I don't think it was to be doing it nonstop consistently for four years. Well, or full time as your primary source of income. Right. I, yeah, that's a great question. I think if magic survives, I would certainly hope that we get there. I mean, I have no intentions to stop. I think you have no intentions to stop. You know, we've had those conversations But there are, you know, we're both at points in our lives where our lives are still likely to change quite a bit. I mean, you know, you're married, could potentially have kids on the horizon. Who knows? I'm not married, could find someone, settle down, have kids. I mean, there's a finite amount of time and I'm already sort of feeling that crunch between having a full-time job and then doing the podcast, you know, with the rest of my spare time, my life's a little out of balance as far as, you know, work, personal, social, that sort of thing. So my, my answer to that is, I think it would be awesome. And I certainly hope so. And I intend to try to make it happen. Yeah. I don't think people, I mean, we're, we're definitely boomers. Like we are old in the content creation world. Is that true? I feel like we're kind of in the middle. I think, no, we're definitely on, in terms of content creation, not talking magic pros. Like there's plenty of pros that are, you know, late thirties, early forties. But in terms of content creators and streamers, they're mostly like 30 or younger. We're, I think we're definitely on the the high end in our, in our mid thirties here. That's probably true. But I also feel like we're young at heart. Like I don't feel like we're lumped in with the paper boomer section of like pros content creators. I feel like we are current. (laughs) You know that that meme that's like Steve Buscemi in the hallway with the skateboard. Like, how do you do, fellow kids? That's, that's <laughs> what I think we're trying to pass ourselves off. You're like, we're hip. We're with it. <laughs> All right. Great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thanks so much to ChannelFireball.com for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading over to CFB for any and all purchases or signing up for CFB Pro, please use the code LOL when you check out to let them know we sent you there. You can check us out streaming. That's all we talked about today. Streaming at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome for Ben, twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware for me. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you have any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening to 200 episodes, and here's to 200 more, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later.